Thank you, Lori. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we've come this morning to worship you together. And as we do, you've ordained that in this time that we gather, that you would minister to your people through your word. I pray that you would do this this morning. I pray that you would open your word to us, that you would speak to us, that you would cause us to hate our sin more, to love you more, and that you would mold us into the image of Christ that we may be better ambassadors for your kingdom in the coming week. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in James 3 today. James 3, we're going to be starting in verse 13. And I know normally I would be in the next psalm, but this, in all honesty, is me preaching to myself this morning, so I hope it's beneficial to you. Please stand with me as we read God's Word together. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Please be seated. Our passage begins with this This question, that's a very important question for all of us. Who is wise and understanding among you? And for any of us with any self-awareness whatsoever, we find ourselves asking this question from time to time. We recognize our weakness, our poverty in knowledge and understanding, and we might cry out, where can I go? Who can I go to to get wisdom and understanding? We need this in our secular lives, our everyday lives. I mean, the last two years, were we not crying out for wisdom nearly every day in all of our interactions? COVID going around, I need wisdom. What do I do? What should I be worried about? What should I not be worried about? We need wisdom. Consider Moses' cry that we heard this morning. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In this fallen world where so many things are broken and corrupt, what do we do? How do we live? We need to seek the Lord to teach us how to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. In the context of James, 
Our passage follows immediately off of one of the hardest to read parts of James, where it talks about the danger of our tongue. Not to read the whole thing, but just looking at verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And again, if we read this passage with any self-awareness whatsoever, we're starting to sweat a bit. This is the tongue. This is, we talk all the time. We talk constantly. And we're literally playing with fire, according to this text. And I think the natural, the natural response to this, the natural cry is, I need wisdom. Where can I go to find it? Where can I go to find help? We talked about this last week in Sunday school. Like, Definition I find helpful for wisdom, very simple, the skill of living, the skill of living well. That's what wisdom is. If you're wise, you're good at making decisions that are generally for the good. But, of course, that's qualified because we're talking about true wisdom and especially wisdom from above. We're talking about the skill of living righteously according to the standard we find in Scripture. And we find Scripture being our guide 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. There is wisdom in God's Word abundant. We just need to know where to look and how to apply it. And we see in James 1, very helpfully, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Hence, our text calling this wisdom from above, because wisdom is a good gift that we need. Every good gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, as we're considering where do we look for truth and how do we, or wisdom, and how do we recognize wisdom when we see it? How do we recognize whether the wisdom that we think we have in ourselves is from above or is from below? I have four points in the text today. Wisdom from above is potent, working. Wisdom from above is poor in spirit. Wisdom from above is peaceable or peacemaking. And fourth, wisdom from above is promised. So, where does James begin as he directs us in our search for wisdom? He first points to the potentially, what the potentially wise person does. And again, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then in verse 17, when he goes into this list of what we find in wisdom, he says it's full of mercy and good fruits. Wisdom from above is active. Wisdom from above is working. And there's a potency to it. This should remind us of James' emphasis throughout this epistle. 
You should be hearing James chapter 2 in your head as you're hearing this. We, we're often struck by if people want to make a dichotomy between how James treats faith and works and how Peter, or Paul treats faith and works, when really there is no opposition. But we do see that James is not content to hear about your faith in James 2. He wants to see it. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James wants to see it, see the fruits of it. He wants to see it active and played out. In James 1.22, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, if you're only a hearer and you think you're a faithful believer, and if you're only a hearer, you're deceiving yourself. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And of course, that faith cannot. Because a faith that saves is a faith that works. And we already quoted James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me, show, my, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So James wants to see faith in action, but it's the same with wisdom. He's not content to hear about your wise pontifications from the sidelines, from the back seat from a state of inactivity. He wants to see a proof of concept. He wants to see this wisdom working out. What is it doing? And that's how we know it's wisdom from above. But what kind of works does James want to see to identify someone as wise and understanding? We're not talking about busyness for the sake of being busy. We're not talking about being effective at fixing cars and outlets and doing your taxes. Those are all good things. But we're talking about a specific kind of works. James, and we, we looked at 122, but if you look at the paragraph, James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he lacks, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In other words, the, the works that we're supposed to be doing to show our wisdom are defined by the law of God. It's interesting when you do look in the Old Covenant in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 and 6, the Lord says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you, are in tr- that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So there's a connection. God's law and wisdom and understanding and especially the keeping of it. Now, of course, we're not in the Old Covenant. And so our relationship to the law is different than for the people that were initially told, Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. God has abrogated all laws in regard to what we are not allowed to eat. The ceremonial system of sacrifices and washings and festivals are fulfilled in Christ, and we are no way obligated to observe those laws today. But we get a summary of the law in Luke 10. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you have answered correctly. Now do this and you will live. And now it's very important to note, this is coming from the perspective of a lawyer coming seeking to justify himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer is, well, perfectly follow the law and you are in life. Which, of course, he can't do. And so, it's helpful to think, James talks about the law as a law of liberty. And when Christ summarized the law in this context, it doesn't seem very liberating. So how is the law the law of liberty? And there's two ways to look at this. One is that the law is a law of liberty because it crushes us and puts us to run to Christ, who is the source of our freedom. So the law acts in that way as a law of liberty because it's pointing you outside of yourself to the source of liberty, the source of freedom. In John 8, 34-36, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But more to the point of what we're talking about, as far as wisdom being seen in its fruits, and those fruits and works are defined by what's in the law, the law can also be seen as liberty because it frees us from the bondage of our Christ frees us from the bondage of our sin. And then the law shows us how we can serve one another with that freedom. Caleb was reading from Galatians 5 this morning. And we see in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And in verses 13 and 14, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we're looking at James and he's saying wisdom, is, wisdom from above is identified in its working and in its fullness of works and its fruit, there are many people that want to tell us how we love God and love other people. There is not, no shortage of a plethora of opinions of what we should do that's most loving for other people. But we don't decide by, our, our, by ourselves what's most loving for other people. We're wicked. <laughs> We're not trustworthy sources as to what is most loving for me, for you to do for me, and what is most, most loving for me to do for you. God's law defines these things. And that's where the law is so helpful for us as regenerated people bought by the blood of Christ. How do I love my neighbor? God's law helps us. God's law directs us. God's law guides us. And so when we think of this first point, that wisdom from above is potent in its working. And anytime you're talking about wisdom in the Bible, you can think about there's the wise and there's the fool. There's wisdom and there's folly. And in our text, there's wisdom from above and there's wisdom from below. So we've seen what wisdom from above, it's full of good works, full of mercy. The fool by contrast, may talk a good game, but there is no good works that flow from his wisdom. The fool may be very busy, but is working for his own benefit primarily rather than primarily for the benefit of others. And the fool does not work because he has been given faith and wisdom as a free gift from God, but works in order to maintain his perceived faith and wisdom. 
And so we can see positively and negatively. The wisdom from above is evidenced with works. And so when we're looking for it, we're looking for people who are at least striving to be active in service to Christ. We have seen that wisdom is not only potent in its work, but is also poor in spirit. Another essential element to identifying wisdom from above is seeing this poorness of spirit, this humility. Looking at James 3, 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You see the repetition. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. How these things are wisdom from below. They're opposed to wisdom from above. The word translated jealousy here, zealos, and you might hear the word zeal. We get this word zeal from this word in our English language. And the word can be used positively and negatively. There's positive zeal. It's good, being on fire for the Lord, wanting to serve. But there's a negative side. And it's interesting that in the Greek mind, this word could also be used for the kind of intensity we have in serving our own interests. And we see that in our own personal lives. We see that in any close relationship that we have, that you sub somebody, we can be very vicious, very aggressive. I kind of, I kind of smirk myself sometimes with the kids, and if a kid happens to push another kid and the kid falls, the immediate cry, the immediate screaming, and it, if they could be articulate, in my mind it's like, I want vengeance. <laughs> I want justice. I want my pound of flesh right now. <laughs> but this is not just in kids. We see this in, all, in all many of our relationships. And we can be so quick to demand what we think we're due in our own selfish ambition, in our own jealousy. And James says, if we have these things in our hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. What are we boasting in? And what is the truth that we're talking about? Again, we're talking about a search for wisdom. And so if someone claims to be wise, but is evidencing, showing bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, they may be many things, but they're not a source for wisdom from above. And if, especially in our own selves, if I claim to be using wisdom from above, if I claim to be submitting to wisdom from above, but it's out of vengeance and it's out of self-promotion, we should be able to identify whatever we are hearing in ourselves. It is not wisdom from above. Jesus talks about the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The negative being that it's a cursed state to be arrogant at heart and boastful. James talks about this kind of wisdom that is rooted in selfish ambition and jealousy. It is not from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. 
And I think we can see in Scripture in many places, the Bible acknowledges that there is a wisdom from below. There are crafty people, intelligent people, wise people, but they're wise for wicked ends. And we see the first example in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And what did the devil's demonic wisdom offer to Adam and Eve? Did, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree of the fruit of the garden? And when Eve responds, he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you, are, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is he preying upon? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. He's trying to inflame these things in Adam and Eve, and especially Eve here. God's holding out on you. He's not offering you what He could be offering you. He's holding back from you. You ought to be jealous, and you ought to act on selfish ambition to take what you are owed, to take what you are not given. And we see this as the devil's motivation in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself the most high. And so we find the source of what wisdom from below is is selfish ambition and jealousy, but ultimately to say, I don't trust what God is doing. I know better. I can be wiser than God and discern what is best for me and what is best for those around me. And as children of the devil, in our unregenerate state, we follow suit. When we were doing our Bible series in Sunday school, I was, this verse has just stuck to my mind about the hubris of man. In Zephaniah 2.15, obscure text, a prophecy against Nineveh. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. But this is what we do. We take the divine claim to ourselves. I am, and there is none else. I know what's wise. I know what's good. And I will make these decisions for myself. Our bitter jealousy and selfish ambition does not come from wisdom from above. It comes from the wisdom of the world. Demonic wisdom from below. And so, if the wisdom from below is rooted in a self-deification, wisdom from above is saying, the Lord is God and I am not. And much like, it was 63, I think, the, I can't remember the title of it, but this, singing this, this hymn together about how we, we call to God asking for deliverance from our sins, deliverance from our trials. And so often, we find that the Lord is not pleased to immediately take those trials and sins away from us. And trusting in that moment, we might say, if I were God, I'd just take it away. Well, that's true. If you were, you would. <laughs> but it's, it's good that you're not. Because, the God, because our God in His wisdom, He works all things for the good of His people. And it's so easy for us as Reformed folks to say that and paint it everywhere and put it on our coffee mugs, but to believe that 
He works all things for my good. Even the most difficult trials that I'm facing right now, that I would just, I would love him to just take this away right now. That he in his wisdom has ordained that I go through this for my good. And it takes a poorness of spirit to acknowledge this. A humility to say the Lord is God and I am not. We see in verse 13 in James 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And of course, this word meekness is very much related to humility. There is a selflessness in the wisdom that is from above. The meekness that is part of this wisdom is both humble and peaceable. So we've seen so far, wisdom is potent in its activity. The works that evidence wisdom from above are defined by God's Word. The fool, in contrast, or wisdom from below, is either inactive or active in the service of self. Wisdom being poor in spirit, evidenced by poorness of spirit. Humility. Folly, on the other hand, is boastful and arrogant, bitterly jealous and envious. And so now we see that wisdom is also peaceable. Wisdom from above is peaceable. In verses 17 and 18, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this, this, this list is very helpful for us discerning. Is this wisdom from above or wisdom from below? Given the flow of the text, I'm, I'm going to look at this descriptive list and apply it especially to peacemaking because I think all of these descriptors here are essential factors in the peaceable nature of wisdom from above, the peacemaking nature of it. And that might strike you as strange because the first descriptor is pure. But the wisdom from above is first pure. What does pure have to do with peace amongst God's people? Well, interestingly, James will tell us in James 4. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with, within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. And especially here, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, an impurity of heart is warfare with God. Conflict with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We see right here, purity of heart is essential for peace with God and peace with God's people. And so when we're looking for wisdom from above, there has to be a purity of heart associated with it. Purity of heart that's produced by it. Otherwise, there will be, there will be factions. There will be fighting. Because we want different things. We want things that are not godly. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says in Matthew, for they shall see God. And purity is an essential factor of using our wisdom in peacemaking. We see that wisdom from above is peaceable. And we see it as having the goal and orientation of making peace. 
And there's a few things that this does not mean that might be helpful. Peaceable does not mean non-confrontational. Which might strike us as odd to say. But remember the prophets, one of the repeated refrains of the condemnation of the wicked prophets was that they would say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And for us that want to be non-confrontational in regards to sin in others' lives, non-confrontational in regards to ways that we should be offering words of wisdom to one another, we're in effect like the prophet saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah doesn't necessarily sound gentle to us when he condemns the prophets for saying these things, but there cannot be true peace while sin is accepted, loved, unchallenged. And so to have true peace, we must be willing to lovingly confront one another. Consider Paul in Galatians 2. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, does it sound right to say, well, that's obviously not wisdom from above because it's not very peaceable. Like, to oppose him to his face publicly doesn't sound very peaceable to me. But when we look on, for certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul's concern is not, Peter, you idiot, you've offended me. Paul's concern is not, you should have done something different just because you need to act a little bit more carefully. It's that you're in sin. And that what you're doing is destroying the unity of this body. You're actively sowing disunity and destroying the peace that's here. And so the... Peaceable does not mean never confronting. It cannot mean that. But what it does mean is when there is confrontation, I'm doing this with the goal of peace. Not doing it for my personal gain, not out of selfish ambition or bitter jealousy. But genuine gospel peace. That can be hard to discern. Which is again why this whole passage is a call that we need help from God, wisdom from above. The other thing about peaceability that might be helpful, it never revels in conflict. It doesn't enjoy the battle for the battle's sake. I cannot find the source, but I remember hearing a quote attributed to General Patton as he overlooked an active battlefield, and he's, he's like exuberant. The fight, how I love it. He gave a speech to his men. He says, men, all the stuff you hear about, the, about the America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Americans love to fight. All real Americans love to sting and clash of battle. 
When you were kids, you all admired the champion marble shooter, the fast runner, the big league ball players, and the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. The very thought of losing is hateful to Americans. Battle is the most significant competition in which a man can indulge. It brings out all his best and it removes all that is base. And I understand why a general would say that. <laughs> I understand why a secular military commander would want to instill this kind of instinct in his soldiers. But that's not the church. That's not us. We cannot have this bloodlust. And, I mean, being in a Reformed church, we've all experienced cage-stage Calvinism, where you are almost chomping at the bit that someone you're talking to might say the wrong thing so that you can correct them and show them all these Bible verses. Look how dumb you are. Look how smart I am. We don't want to get into a place where I'm just itching to get my theological sword bloody. Wisdom from above is peaceable. And so we see this in when there is conflict, when there is confrontation, it is for the goal of making gospel peace. And we see it is not something we enjoy for the sake of it. If we find ourselves just waiting to jump into this conflict, because I'm not comfortable unless I'm fighting with somebody, that needs to be put to death. That's wisdom from below. We see that wisdom from above is also gentle. And when we're talking about in the local context, especially thinking about conflict and confrontation, if I'm going to someone here, I must have in my mind, these are not enemies that must be defeated and subdued and wrestled into submission. These are brothers and sisters whom I love and want their good. And without that emphasis, wisdom from, we don't have wisdom from above. Wisdom from above is orienting ourselves to think biblically. And that biblical way of thinking is to say, I'm not dealing with an enemy to be destroyed. I'm dealing with a brother and sister who's to be loved and helped. We see wisdom from above is open to reason. And without this, there can be no peace. Without being open to reason, there's no way we can get along for an extended period of time. We can only get along as long as we're submitting ourselves to your reason. But as soon as someone doesn't want to submit to your reason, and maybe even for good reason, well, if you're not open, there's no peace anymore. Now there's conflict. Openness to reason is being able to say, I was wrong I sinned against you. I misunderstood what you said or did. I misremembered what happened. My memory is not perfect. Again, we're back to poorness of spirit now. We're back to humility. Because a lack of being open to reason is the height of arrogance and pride. I, I am. And there is none else. I can't be corrected. But we need wisdom from above to say, I'm a broken person just like you. I could have remembered this wrongly. It's possible that I didn't understand the full ramifications of what was said in between us and I got needlessly offended and I need to repent of that. We see that wisdom from above is full of mercy. 
to withhold wrath, even deserved wrath. James says, do not speak in chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver, and he is judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And again, we're back to the whole problem of, well, if I think I am the judge, I've stepped into the seat of God, and I believe that I am the one that can make all these judgments. I am the one to whom blood is owed. I am the one who requires justice. But wisdom from above says, I'm not owed any of these things. And because I've been forgiven so much, I ought to be eager to forgive. Full of mercy. Wisdom from above is impartial. And this is the pursuit of having an unbiased application of you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James talks about partiality at the beginning of chapter 2, looking at verses 8 through 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And again, if we're thinking in terms of peace in the body, where there's partiality, there can be no peace. Because we have different standards based on whatever we're being partial to. Whether it's in the case where James is talking about social status, wealth, whether, I mean, we're talking about racism all the time, that we can be impartial based on race, and it's equally disgusting. Partiality in the church is one of the most destructive forces we can imagine. When people recognize in the body that there are different standards in the local church based on your last name, your wealth, your skin color, or whatever, then peace cannot be maintained. There cannot be unity because there is, in fact, no unity. We see in Galatians 3 what is called for. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. Wisdom from above is impartial. Wisdom from below is partial. We see that wisdom from above is sincere, unhypocritical, genuine. And so our peacemaking is not a means to an end. It's not just so we can keep warm bodies in the seats. It's not just so we can try to increase the bottom line of the church's finances. Peacemaking is what we're doing because we love each other and we love Christ. The peaceable nature of wisdom from above is a means of love, loving other people. Where there is insincerity, there cannot be unity. You know, hypocrisy, the word in Greek, wearing a mask, being a different person based on different contexts. Where that's happening, you can't have real unity. You, by definition, don't have real unity because you yourself are disunited (laughs) because you're being one person in one context and one person in another context. Verse 18 drives home the point of this as a descriptor of what it means to be peacemaking when he talks about And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. How do we do that? By seeking wisdom from above to be pure, peaceable, gentle, 
open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Matthew 5, again, the Beatitudes are really parallel to a lot of what we're discussing this morning. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now again, we've talked about, a little bit about self-awareness this morning. If we have some self-awareness, you might be feeling a little heavy <laughs> right now. Because we're so often not any of these things. We've talked about wisdom being potent and it's working. We talked about wisdom from above being poor in spirit. We've talked about wisdom from above being peaceable and peacemaking. And I'm not much of the time. We might say wisdom from above is too far above. I can't reach it. (laughs) But this is why it's good that it doesn't hang above outside my reach. The Lord has brought it down to us. And this is where we talk about wisdom from above is promised. And we thank God for that. Where is it promised? Not necessarily in James 3, but in James 1. In James 1, we find in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is a promise. That there is a source of wisdom for you to reach out to and find and you will be given more than you could ask for, more than you need. James 1, 16-17, we've looked at this before. Every good gift comes from above, coming down, not outside of our reach, but coming down to us from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. How can it be that we are promised such wisdom when we've just admitted we don't deserve it? We're so often impotent in our works. We're so often arrogant and boastful, so eager to take the seat that only belongs to God. And we're so often eager for blood, whether theological, whether emotional. God forbid it be physical. We've done nothing to deserve this, of course. But it comes down from the Lord because wisdom incarnate came down and bought our salvation. We saw this in Proverbs 8 this morning. Very wonderful text that points to the Son's activity in creation. And we see wisdom calling out to the simple in verses 1-11. through 11, Like the gospel call is for everyone. We see in verses 12-21 through 21 that wisdom offers a better life and an inheritance, which we are offered in Christ. We see wisdom participating in the creation of the cosmos in verses 22 through 31. And then you get the verses 32 through 36. And Proverbs 8 says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, hear instruction, and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And we, it's so obvious how this applies to Christ. So obvious how this is Christ. Those who find Christ find life. Those who hate Christ love death. We're talking about seeking life itself in wisdom incarnate. John 1, I think we can see some of these similar themes here. In the beginning was the Word. 
the divine logos, the wisdom of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Skipping down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born not of your wisdom. To know that I'm smart enough to actually listen to Christ and embrace His Word, and you guys are too stupid to do that, so good on me, I guess. Like, (laughs) that's not what we're talking about. Not Not of the blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. And as Caleb referenced this morning, 1 Corinthians 1.24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God was given for us for our salvation. Again, I am so often impotent in my works, but Christ is omnipotent in His works. Christ was so potent in His works that He not only worked miracles of power while He walked among us, but He died the death of a sinner to take God's wrath on Himself and rise from the dead to be the first fruits of those who are His. I am so often boastful and arrogant, even lying about the source of my wisdom when it suits me, But Jesus is the paragon of being poor in spirit. We see this in Philippians 2. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was born in the form of man, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I am so often eager to fight for the sake of it, for being offended and wanting my pound of flesh. But Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Is there a greater peacemaker than Christ? Colossians 1 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And as adopted sons and daughters of God, bought by the blood of Jesus, we can receive the teachings of our Heavenly Father and the discipline that grows us in wisdom. So we've been given wisdom more than we can have in Christ. And we've been bought by Christ's blood. And even more, as if you needed more. (laughs) This is where we can now pray, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. How should I interact with my beloved brother and sister with whom I just hurt? Let me think about them because of something they said or did to me. God says he'll give us wisdom. We need to ask him. Now, don't be like, you know, you've heard the story of the guy in the flood that's on the housetop. And he calls to God, save me. And a guy comes by on a rowboat and says, hop in the boat and I'll help you. And he says, no, 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 I'm waiting on God to save me. <laughs> Helicopter comes by, says, no, 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 I'm waiting on God to save me. Then he dies and asks God, why didn't God save him? He says, well, I sent you the boat. I sent you the helicopter. It's the same with what we're talking about here. Don't be asking for wisdom and ignore the counsel of your brothers and sisters. Don't be asking for wisdom 
And don't, ask, don't talk to your elders who are here for your shepherding, who are here for your benefit. Don't neglect to talk to your deacon who's here to love you and serve you. Don't be asking for wisdom and not reading the Word of God and seeking wisdom there. Sometimes we pray this, and the only way we want this prayer to be answered is some kind of divine intuition that shows us the way to go. Anything is foolish. That may happen, and praise God if it does happen. But God's given us each other. Use us. He's given some of us some degree of wisdom for your benefit. So I pray that you would use that. How often are we languishing in trial, prolonging our running to the Lord because we are stupid, proud, and clinging to some level of autonomy? I know that's me much of the time. And again, we're all over James today, but James says, you desire and you do not have because you do not ask. In verse, chapter 4, verse 2. How long am I just stubbornly holding out, asking God for wisdom, and I wonder why I don't have wisdom? Ask Him. He's promised wisdom. Ask for wisdom and then seek it where He has provided wisdom among His people, in His Word, in prayer. And have faith that these words are true. That He really does give generously to all without reproach those who ask Him for wisdom. We do not deserve the mercy and grace of God, and yet it is God's nature to be gentle with His people. James 4 goes on in verse 6, but He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the wisdom from below, the demonic wisdom, and it will flee. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning over your sin and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. This is not a text meant to pummel you. This is a text meant to turn your eyes from yourself and to God. Humble yourself before Him and He will exalt you. And as we turn to the Lord's table, this is what we endeavor to do every week. The time and silence that's given for you to evaluate yourself, to examine yourself. This is what we're trying to do. What's in James 4? To weep over our sin. To call out to God for wisdom and forgiveness and grace. So I invite you to do that as we do that. Caleb, will you come forward?